This is Religion and Theology, a podcast from the Center for Theology and Religious Studies. This is the fifth lecture out of seven in the series, The Many Guises of European Catholicism. And Stephen Bullivan, professor at St. Mary's University, London, here investigates commonalities among several mainstream denominations in Europe, the Catholic Church in Britain, and their significant decline over half a century. Well, thank you very much. It's a, it's a great honor to have been invited um, to such a stellar lineup of speakers and topics. Um, and, and, and quite apart from the honor, it's been a great pleasure to come to London and have such wonderful hosts and I'd like to thank Benjamin Ekman and Richard and Alexander and uh, um, Stefan who's in Jerusalem or on the way. Um, so it's, it, it's, a, it's a real pleasure to be here and thank you all for coming. And the, much of the, the, the detail um, is, is taken and some of the particular graphs and charts and things and, and um, taken from two publications, one that uh, came out uh, a couple of years ago um, and, and one that's literally about to come out next month. Um, and, and what I'm trying to do in this paper is to focus in on what I think, what I argue is, is, is almost the, the dominant plot of, of a much more rich, detailed, complex history um, of the overarching trend of the Catholic population in Britain um, since Vatican II, um, but actually, as we'll see, uh, since around 1945, 1946. Um, So on the 5th of June, 1933, the foundation stone for the Metropolitan Cathedral of Christ the King in Liverpool, in the northwest of England, was solemnly blessed and lain. Designed by Edwin Lutyens, the final structure, prophesied for completion around 70 years in the future, would be colossal. Housing a congregation 10,000 strong, Its overall size would be both near equal to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome and would, I think, deliberately, well, actually deliberately, dwarf the the new Anglican cathedral being built literally down the road, half a mile away. Um, These were less ecumenical types. Um, Such was the project's ambition that even G.K. Chesterton's remarks on the erection of a great cathedral for a great city, comparing the expansion and exaltation of great building or the lifting of great domes pointing their way to destiny to the expansion and exaltation of Christianity itself, must have sounded rather more subdued than hyperbolic. This is, you can see this in the Museum of Liverpool. It's the, the architect's um, model, which, if you look inside, has little people inside, and it's very richly detailed. Um, Now, on the 14th of May, 1967, Pentecost, 
A Catholic cathedral for Liverpool was finally consecrated. Yet this one was strikingly different in almost every way from that embarked upon 34 years earlier. And this is a, a lovely newsreel from just the year before the, the, the cathedral was opened. Who at first glance would suppose that this building could possibly be a cathedral? But such it is, the Metropolitan Cathedral of Christ the King. It occupies a dominant site in Liverpool, and in perhaps a year's time, Roman Catholics will be summoned to worship by its bells. In the design, a cathedral in the round, religion accepts the challenge of the 20th century while planning to exist in this edifice for at least 500 years. All materials have been chosen with durability in mind. An exterior altar is so placed as to be the focal point of a vast congregation at special times. The huge lantern will have 16 stained glass windows. Beneath it in the nave, which is 200 feet in diameter, the centre is occupied by the high altar in the direct line of sight of every worshipper. It was hoped a few years ago that the cost would not be more than a million pounds. But in the manner of the present age, that figure may be exceeded. Incorporated in the structure is a car park. The Cathedral of Christ the King will belong to the present, draw on the inspiration of 2,000 years, and reach out into the centuries to come. This dramatic change of plan from what was begun in the 1930s to what was completed in the 1960s was partially motivated by cost considerations. Building materials were in very short supply in post-war Britain and very expensive. After plans for a scaled-down version of Lutyens' original faltered, a design competition was held which Frederick Gibbard, later Sir Frederick Gibbard, whose other projects in this period included a nuclear power station and terminals one to three at Heathrow Airport, one in 1959, and his was one of the more conservative designs. But finances alone hardly explain this startlingly new language with which the Archdiocese of Liverpool chose to express itself. Who at first glance would suppose that this building could possibly be a cathedral, as we've just heard? In fact, Gibbard's plans, responding to the design competition's detailed brief, self-consciously reflected several liturgical, aesthetic, and cultural currents already well underway by the late 1950s, a preemptively bold instance of what would soon become, not always kindly, as post-Vatican II church architecture. Arguably, the ultimate design of Liverpool Metropolitan Cathedral was presciently post-Vatican II in other ways too. Lutyens' 1930s original was designed for 10,000 mass-goers. Gibbard's original plans aimed for just 3,000, and this was ultimately scaled back to a little over 2,000. Today, the, the only one mass a week is held in the main cathedral itself. Um, all the other masses are held in the crypt chapel, which was the, the crypt built for the original plan for the cathedral, which is, I mean, it's big. I mean, don't get me wrong, but it's not. 2,000 people. Even before the council, before the liturgical reforms, before Humani Vitae, before the social, cultural, and moral upheaval of the swinging 60s, even in so staunchly Catholic a city as Liverpool, 
triumphal talk of expansion and exaltation seems rather to have dampened down. Perhaps, as we shall see, this was with good reason. In this lecture, I'd like to give a brief and, and very big-picture sketch. There's a great deal of detail that it's not possible to go into of what I regard as the most striking feature of British Catholicism over the past 50 or more years, the fact that a very high proportion of people who were brought up Catholic, cradle Catholics, not only do not practice or believe Catholicly, but no longer even regard themselves as Catholic, um, at least to the extent of ticking the Catholic box on, on surveys asking for their current religious affiliation. Now, of course, religious identity is a vastly more complex reality than can really be reduced to a tick box survey. Um, nevertheless, um, feeling sufficiently distant from the religion of one's upbringing to not even tick the box anymore um, seems to me to be quite a strong measure of alienation. It's, it's often the last thing to go. People who don't believe you've never been to church for decades will still, still tick the box. So the fact that a large portion don't even do that anymore seems to me to be very significant. Now, what do I mean by a very high proportion? Um, so there's a, there's a few steps here uh, taken from various sources. Um, in 2014, the, the total adult UK, the British population, sorry, so England, Wales, and Scotland, was around 45 million. Um, based on nationally representative surveys that ask both what religion do you currently belong to, and in what religion were you brought up, we can uh, infer that there were around 3.8 million current Catholics, um, but around 6.2 people million people who said that they had been brought up Catholic. Um, based on the, all of those who said they were brought up Catholic, um, the numbers have gone slightly down since 2014, but it's not far different. But around 56% of cradle Catholics still said that they identified as Catholic. Um, around 5.5% opted for a different Christian label. Some of those were just, they just said Christian, but a, a much smaller proportion opted for Church of England or, or Baptist or, or Methodist. 1% um, for a, a non-Christian religion, I think most of those were saying that they were Buddhists, um, which can mean a, a great variety of things. Um, and, and around 38% uh, said that they had no religion. So around two in every five cradle Catholics in Britain now say that they have no religion. And we can, we can look at people who were brought up Catholic and sort of see what they now identify as, but also we can look at people um, who now identify as Catholic and look at what they were brought up as. Um, and with those two sets of data, we can look at the ratio of people leaving to people converting to Catholicism. Um, and for every one person in Britain who was converted to Catholicism from any other label, um, there are 10 people who say they were brought up Catholic, but who now no longer identify as Catholic. It's about 11, it's around the similar numbers for the Church of England. Um, I mean, no religious group 
looks very good on that on that metric um, in Britain, apart from maybe uh, Islam um, and, and no religion, which is is quite the opposite. And and then the final statistic um, in this section is this is simply the the, the diocesan own mass counts for the whole of England and Wales um, from the late 50s where it was rising until um, around the mid 60s and there's two years that are missing which is irritating because they're quite critical years um, but certainly around the mid 1960s mass attendance peaks and ever since it's with, I think with the exception of about three years it's been year on year decline. As you are no doubt aware, Britain is by no means a unique case. I could show similar statistics for other Western European countries, and indeed for Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and increasingly, um, although with a delay, the United States. Nor within these countries is Catholicism the only denomination to have suffered over the past five or six decades, or necessarily the denomination to have suffered worse. Um, we can talk about parallels to other countries or other churches uh, later. I mean, it's a topic I address in some detail in the book and, and elsewhere. But to keep things simple this evening, I'm going to focus just on Britain and just the Catholic Church. Um, so how has this mass exodus come about, um, and who or what has caused it, and why? Now, in Britain, the decade and a half following the Second World War has typically been viewed as an era of Christian vitality and strength with Catholics taking more than their fair share of the spoils. The social historian Callum Brown, for instance, has famously characterised the period 1945 to 1958 as a return to piety, featuring the greatest church growth that Britain had experienced since the mid-19th century. The Catholic case certainly bears this out. When the Irish-American priest Father Patrick Payton toured England in 1952, the estimated one million Catholics who attended his open-air family rosary crusade rallies must surely have felt that theirs was a denomination on the up and up. And so it was, at least for the time being. Catholic baptisms accounted for just under 10% of all live births in England and Wales in 1945. By the early 60s, it was 16%. This was, of course, a period of the post-war baby boom. Everyone seemed to be having children, and Catholics were, for the time being, having more children than most. Priestly vocations and Catholic marriages both rose steadily in this period, as too did the number of adult converts. In 1959, some 16,000 rec received into the church, up from under 10,000 in 1945. Large numbers of immigrants certainly helped fuel impressive Catholic growth in this period. These were above all Irish, but also included Poles, Ukrainians, Lithuanians, Italians, Spaniards, and others under the post-war European voluntary worker scheme, often forming significant local pockets. Even so, British Catholicism was not just doing, but was seen to be doing rather well. For some years later, even a non-Catholic could be heard to prophesy, at the time not wholly implausibly, that with the birth rate and conversions, it seems to me that we'll all be Catholics in 30 or 40 years' time. And yet, beneath this undoubted Catholic growth and vitality, ominous cracks were already beginning to show. In 1964, the tablet published two long articles under the banner, Why Do Catholics Lapse? 
The author points out that official church statistics for England and Wales estimate the total Catholic population at around 3.8 million. Of these, around 2.1 million are at Mass on any given Sunday, a difference of around 1.7 million. Moreover, rather robuster estimates based upon the relationship between infant baptisms and total live births and allowing for conversions and immigration and deaths and emigration suggests that the real number of baptised Catholics in the early 1960s was more like 5.75 million. Assuming that the mass counts were broadly accurate, then that amounts to some 3.65 million missing Catholics on any given Sunday. Now, regardless of the precise numbers involved, it is evident that lapsation was already a significant phenomenon by the early 1960s, and had been for some time. Scottish sociologists' estimates that fewer than half of Glaswegian Catholics were at Mass on a given Sunday had already begun appearing in the mid-1950s. Other indicators from the post-war but pre-conciliar period suggest that, however large the number of Catholics in church, there was a large and quietly growing number who weren't, but from the church's perspective, should have been. In 1949, the American Time magazine reported that British Roman Catholics are making an intensive drive for the lost and strayed. The focus of the article was that the Catholic Missionary Society, founded in 1910 to convert Protestants, had recently turned its main attention to bringing back lapsed Catholics. This new direction was initially pioneered under the leadership of Father John Heenan, who took over in 1947, but left to become Bishop of Leeds in 1951. Neatly enough, it was Heenan, who was made Archbishop of Liverpool in 1957, who commissioned the opinion-dividing Metropolitan Cathedral. Similarly, when Father Derek Warlock, another future Archbishop of Liverpool, was appointed parish priest of Stepney in East London in 1964, he estimated that at the start of his own tenure, we had around 7,000 parishioners with a mass attendance of under 1,000. So-called leakage among the large numbers of recent Irish immigrants in big cities was also an issue of official concern. These kinds of evidence are, it's true, difficult to square with the much rosier view of growth and vitality of post-war British Catholic pastoral life that I gave earlier. Alternative facts have acquired a bad press recently, but they are necessary here if we are to adequately grasp what was going on in the decades preceding Vatican II. Two considerations in particular are worth bearing in mind. Now, the first is simply a matter of perspective. Levels of lapsation, which in the 40s and 50s were causes of serious concern, can look from the present day, 60, 70 years further down the same line, as positively aspirational. According to the social historian Enda Delaney, a report on the Irish in Birmingham prepared in 1955 concluded that, quote, the number who miss mass, though still a minority, is truly alarming. And side note on this, I've been presenting, uh, some of other reports I've been doing have been on young adults' religiosity across Europe using the European Social Survey. And, you know, the, the one standout country there in terms of religiosity of young people is, is, is Poland, as you might expect. Um, and, and I presented a Polish version of this report in Poland um, in October. And you know, I was talking about how, you know, compared to anywhere else apart from maybe Malta or the Philippines or somewhere, 
Poland is still a remarkably, astonishingly religious country. And for the people in Poland, this was awful news that only 70% only of young Poles are in mass on a Sunday. Um, and, and the same is true in Ireland. Um, if you ever, which I have done, present, you know, in, in, in any objective terms, Ireland is still a very religious country, and as, as, as particularly within Western European democracies. But obviously, if your benchmark is Ireland 30 years ago, then, and rightly, Ireland is, you know, this secular morass. Um, now, recent data shows that a considerable majority of English and Welsh cradle Catholics in fact, I think I've got the data. 59.6% not only do not merely miss mass, but never or practically never attend church services of any kind, of any denomination, apart from weddings, baptisms, funerals. Likewise, the alarm ringing 1964 tablet article quoted above estimates a 3.7 million shortfall from the total baptized Catholic population to the number of mass on a typical Sunday. 50 years later, in 2014, I estimate the missing to have grown to around 5.4 million. Now, the second, more substantial explanation is that much of British Catholicism's strength of belief, practice, and identity, a tribal sense of identity and belonging, this kind of sense that, you know, once a Catholic, always a Catholic, and even if you end up as an atheist, you're a Catholic atheist, and you can never really let it go, which you get in people like Evelyn War and that sort of generation of Catholic writers, Graham Greene had for decades been nurtured in close-knit, often predominantly ethnic, parish subcultures, worlds in which the not only was the parish your centre of your religious life, it was the centre of your social life, it was the centre of your working life, in that the people you lived, your neighbours were your fellow parishioners, were your fellow miners, or were your fellow factory workers, were the people, when you got back from work, you would then drink together in the parish's own pub. Um, and on a Saturday, you know, you would be supporting, you know, Glasgow Rangers as a Catholic team. That the whole sense of, you know, we, we talk a lot now about fragmented and multiple identities, but, but certainly in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and, and before, those Irish parishes, and in America you get kind of Polish parishes, you know, you get people say, well, you know, I was in my early teens growing up in Pittsburgh before I realised that not everyone in America was Polish. Um, those kinds of worlds were already um, falling away in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, and, and they've kind of almost completely gone now. This was especially true in big cities such as Birmingham, Glasgow, Manchester, and parts of London with large Irish populations. In the 1950s, for example, Liverpool had around 50 Catholic parishes within a three-mile radius of the city centre, roughly two churches per square mile. In such places, the parish was the centre of, of one's whole life, um, including your romantic life. I mean, you know, the, the odds of you meeting um, a potential husband or wife who wasn't Catholic were already quite small because of the Catholic school system, Catholic social events, Catholic youth clubs, Catholic... Um, such Catholic ghettos, as they were sometimes affectionately called, were still apparently going strong in the 1950s and 60s, but they were also simultaneously in the process of passing away more or less forever. 
Now, the reasons for this are complicated, but have much to do with large-scale rebuilding and restructuring of British society in the aftermath of the Second World War. To put it very simply, Catholic baby boomers, and there were, of course, a very large number of them, were typically brought up very differently from their parents and grandparents. For example, they were far more likely than their parents to have been raised in a mixed marriage family, um, partly due to the fact that their parents' generation during the war had much more diverse opportunities to meet socially non-Catholics. Um, you know, your romantic horizons were no longer confined to the next parish. They were far more likely than their parents to have been raised not in one of these inner-city Catholic-majority neighbourhoods, um, many of which were in the process of being demolished as part of slum clearance and urban regeneration programmes, um, but rather in one of the new religiously mixed suburbs or new towns that were being built um, all over the country, the huge house-building um, uh, initiative. Um, and, and very often, especially with housing being the priority, churches would, were not the priority. So you'd have a new neighbourhood. You'd have perhaps been moved from a Catholic-dominant neighbourhood to a much more religiously mixed neighbourhood. It would often be the case that then the community would raise money to build a school first and have mass in the school hall before you then build the church. So there's this dislocation of habit and and place and, and heritage. They were far more likely to live further away from their grandparents and other extended family. And due to educational reforms um, that were coming in just as the, baby the early baby boomers were coming of age in the early 60s, um, they were vastly more likely than their parents to have the opportunity to go off to university. Um, now, this achievement of you know, being the first one in your generation to go to university, while a source of undoubted pride for their parents, could nevertheless drive a further wedge between the generations. Three years away from the habits of home meant other things too. Exposure to new ideas, beliefs, lifestyles, living and identifying with like-minded people from a range of religious backgrounds or none, and with an increased likelihood of meeting a non-Catholic future spouse. And naturally, the likelihood of a middle-class career and lifestyle carrying one still further from one's home neighbourhood, this time for good. The young adult-slash-starting-university transition is now a widely recognised trigger for lapsation. Here is where that tradition began. Already by the mid-1960s, a great many students were said to arrive at university either already lapsed or just about to begin being so. Crucially, it was this bumper generation of young British Catholics who came of age as seemingly everything in the church was also in the process of changing. As I've argued in much more detail elsewhere, the reforms of the Second Vatican Council were specifically intended in large measure to address many of the same kinds of emerging pastoral problems that we have been discussing in Britain. Large areas of France had, for example, been officially recognised as mission territories by the 1940s, and the worker priest movement was specifically aimed to bring back the working classes and the young. German theologians, including both Rahner and Ratzinger, were openly referring to Germany as a pagan country in which Christians lived in a diaspora, 
by the mid-1950s. And in Italy, worries were expressed over falling rates of mass attendance, especially among the young and the working classes from the 40s and 50s onwards. These neo-evangelistic, before the phrase was coined, intentions of Vatican II are abundantly clear in Sacrosanctum Concilium, the dogmatic constitution on the sacred liturgy. Its opening sentence affirms that among the councils, the council as a whole, not just that document, four main aims, two of them are to impart an ever-increasing vigour to the Christian life of the faithful and to strengthen whatever can help to call the whole of mankind into the household of the church. The task of undertaking the reform and promotion of the liturgy is then explicitly linked to fulfilling these aims. Moreover, the texts express desire of imbuing the liturgical rites with new vigour to meet the circumstances and needs of modern times, that they may become pastorally efficacious to the fullest degree, is a clear admission that the liturgy, as it currently stood, was felt to be less than optimally vigorous or pastorally efficacious. Did the reforms, as they were concretely interpreted and implemented, achieve these goals? Judging by the kinds of statistics we've been looking at, then at least in Britain, one honestly has to say that they didn't. But why not? Think of it this way. Imagine that you wanted to perform an experiment whereby certain changes were introduced to the life and practice of a religious group in order to gauge the relative impact, positive or negative, of such changes. To do this, one would pick a time and place in which as many other surrounding factors as possible stayed the same. With the benefit of hindsight, Western Europe or North America during the 1960s is not the most obvious choice. And yet it was precisely as the baby boomers, this huge generation, there'd been a, a, a real dearth of births in the two decades leading up to the baby boom, because there was wars on and all sorts of stuff, there was a depression. And then this immense number of young people who, who were that much more distant, because there was no bridging generations between them and you know, the parents, um, suddenly coming of age at once. They hit their, uh, the early boomers hit their late teens and early 20s. The critic, the critical period of personal, social, and religious development that we now term emerging adulthood, at precisely a turbulent moment of immense social, cultural, political, and moral changes in the wider world. And as the sweeping changes and chaotic as they concretely played out changes that followed in the wake of the Second Vatican Council occurred. This was, one might say, a very far cry from laboratory conditions. The problem is not so much that the mass changed. That is, that one Sunday it was in Latin with plain chant, and the next it was in English with hymns or folk songs. The problem is, is that over a period of perhaps a decade, from December 1964 to the mid-1970s, the mass never stopped changing as it was concretely experienced in parishes. This was true enough of the formal text and rubrics. The original vernacular mass in, in Advent 1964 was essentially the Tridentine mass with bits in English, but still had very much the feel. Um, that was tinkered with as over the next few years. And then in 1969, there was a whole novus order, which was very different again introduced. 
But it was all the truer at the level of concrete lived experience. The late 60s especially were a period of intense and at times outrageous experimentation. Simply put, one did not know what to expect from Sunday to Sunday or from parish to parish. Much of this chaos was, moreover, justified on the basis of trying to make mass pastorally efficacious to the fullest degree for the ever-growing numbers of baby boomers who were reaching the age where they no longer had to go to mass with their parents. And, and this is when you get experimentation of, well, the young people are listening to the Beatles, therefore we should have Beatles songs in the mass. Um, and, and, and again, the, it's one thing, even if that... There's an argument for that, to an extent. But vernacular musical styles were only ever going to be bad cover versions of the secular music. Um, and, and I think this is one of the things that enculturation has always... In, in, a, in a contemporary American megachurch, for example, which became a big thing in the 1970s and 80s, it's possible to have excellently done contemporary Christian music, it's professional standard that you can actually hear properly, that's the kind of music that people actually pay to listen to when they're not at church. It's very difficult to replicate a single vernacular style done well in a multi-generation, multi-ethnic um, parish. Um, if you can target a single demographic, that's one thing, but it's very difficult to find uh, a vernacular musical style, which is, is precisely what the Vatican II document calls for, in mission territories, that, that expresses the religious genius of, of, of the people. Um, and because it was felt that the church was losing the young, ever more desperate measures were introduced to make mass relevant. So since nothing seemed to work, and since the council specifically mandated a more radical adaptation of the liturgy in mission territories. Well, if you were the, past, the chaplain of a, of a high school or of a university, then you could legitimately regard your territory as a mission territory and try all sorts of bold experiments to, to kind of, you know, find the silver bullet that would finally, you know, bring all these lax young Catholics back. Um, and nothing ever really quite did it. Now, the important point here is not actually liturgical or aesthetic, but rather sociological and anthropological and psychological. So religious worldviews, and therefore the religious identities of those inhabiting them, are at their strongest when they are simply taken for granted. When they are just the way things are, and moreover, the way things always have been and always will be, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. For generations of Catholics, the Mass itself was the most obvious symbol of such apparent timelessness, all the more so for its obvious set-apartness from contemporary language and custom. In Britain, its centrality to the Catholic imagination in the wake of and in opposition to the Protestant Reformation, moreover, further reinforced this, this was perhaps especially so among English and Irish diaspora Catholics, given their specific history and folk memory. In this light, occasional minor changes to the rubrics in the de decades preceding the councils, such as the Holy Week reforms in the mid-1950s, enacted uniformly everywhere, on the same date and in the same way, were barely if at all noticed by ordinary mass goers, 
mere ripples on the surface of deep, unchanging stability. It was therefore not only the language and outward forms of the mass that changed, but ultimately rather the givenness of the whole Catholic package. The constant changes, all happening differently and at different rates in each parish, an experience as exhausting for some as it was exhilarating for others. It was this that really eroded any erstwhile sense of permanence. The sheer adaptability of the post-conciliar liturgy is viewed from one perspective, its greatest strength. It can be customized perfectly to hit the specific constituency that one's trying to reach. And, and, and certainly seen it argued that outside of the West, then this has been far more successful. Um, yet taken as a whole, this multiplicity of options might feasibly undermine one's weddedness to any of them. Prior to the reforms, most Catholics likely did not have liturgical preferences. Now, the liturgy presented limited possibilities for dissatisfaction, whether great or small. Worshippers were now free to gravitate to mass at a particular parish or at a particular time, which best suited their taste and or schedule. But they were unlikely to find one that was, in all its details, perfectly satisfactory. Matters of personal taste aside, the introduction of choice to Catholic liturgy arguably has had a more fundamentally eroding effect on practice, and thereby ultimately identity. After all, it is not necessarily so big a step from choosing which to choosing it. Nor was the Mass the only thing to change. So much of what had been regarded as essential to Catholic life, identity, and imaginary was suddenly swept away, often with very little direct mandate in the text of Vatican II. Fish on Fridays, which had been a very totemic marker of cultural identity, um, was formally abolished, but you know, the idea was that well, people could still choose to do it, or they could take on other charitable acts instead and make it more personally meaningful. Um, but actually, that's a very naive view of, of religious social psychology. That's not how these things work. Traditional devotions, such as the rosary, novenas, praying to saints, um, were, were seen as distractions from the mass rather than as kind of uh, supports and, and buttresses. And the position of the tabernacle, um, even the look and smell of Catholic churches, or indeed of Catholic priests and nuns, were all gone. Everything, it seemed, either had changed or could change. However, perhaps the one thing that a significant proportion of the laity wanted to see changed, and were confidently told they should expect to see changed, was the church's opposition to artificial contraception. It's a whole other topic, but as I've argued elsewhere, the huge and ongoing controversy surrounding human IV time the great confusion, frustration, and anger it occasioned can only be properly understood against this wider background. This, this background of everything else could change, and it was the one thing that didn't change that, that, that became the stumbling block. Um, the effervescence, as the American sociologist Andrew Brealy has referred to it, of the immediate post-conciliar years could not, of course, last forever. Eventually, the liturgy in most parishes settled down into a set menu of more or less predictable offerings. There'll be a family mass, a high mass, a, a vigil mass, and you know, there's a certain, there's a much higher standard deviation of, from, from before, but there's a certain um, mainstream uh, 
range that one might expect at an ordinary parish. Um, whatever other factors may also have played a role, it seems obvious that this decade or so of ecclesial turbulence did not exactly help matters. As a more general point, it's worth noting that the people best suited to weathering the storm were those already settled down into a single parish and with an established routine of attending every Sunday. Such ingrained habits have a very powerfully conservative influence over masculine, um, even when one is no longer getting much out of the experience. But what often you find is that when people move house, that they then realise, well, actually, we're not really sure where we're going anyway. Or, or when, um, I mean, we know about when people go off to university, they, they might drift. They may not intend to, but they kind of get out of the habit. But it, it's also often the case that the parents who've made such a big thing of going as a family then suddenly realise that, well, actually, well, you know, who are we doing this for? You know, we're not, we're not kind of, we're not going for an intrinsic reason. Um, even the eldest of the baby boomers were still just in their late teens on the original vernacular Sunday in 1964, and typically had several years of college and or finding themselves ahead before putting down any roots in one particular place. This stage in life is already disruptive in terms of the regularity of religious practice. For the boomers, however, this period saw the sweeping away of the religiosity they had grown up with, their impressions of which would forever remain those of a bored child or teenager, with nothing specific replacing it for a long time. So having lost the habit of regular mass attendance, by the time they might have been ready to return, when they started to get married, get jobs, put down roots of their own, they could no longer go back home to the old forms and systems of things which once seemed everlasting, but which are changing all the time. Critically, they had also missed out on the long, slow, and even period of acclimatisation to British Catholicism's new normal. Now, I focused almost exclusively on the experiences of the baby boom generation, um, since in terms of lapsation and disaffiliation, they are... I think very clearly a watershed generation. It's not to say that you know there's not generation-specific stories to tell about other generations, but because of how many they were, and because of the you know the the two generations on that we are now, they kind of set a new pattern. Um, this is a, it's not the the most immediately uh, obvious. Uh, Graph to so this is based on uh, the top line. The darker line at the top is uh, the American figures, um, and and the lighter grey line is the British figures. And this is the retention rate of cradle Catholics. So this is the proportion of cradle Catholics raised in any one particular year who still identified as Catholics by the time they were included in these surveys. So for example. Uh, it, and there's a huge amount of noise from any one year because there's only very small proportions once you get down to the yearly level. Um, but basically, A, the downward trend is, is, is quite clear. You can see the trend line. Um, you know, the, the more recent the year, the less likely it is that a person brought up Catholic will retain that identity. But this is the years 1945 and 1946. Um, so people born in those years were around 65% or 68% likely to retain a Catholic identity by the time they were surveyed from the early 90s onwards. Um, again, a great deal of noise, but no subsequent year hit those peaks. Um, 
until you get to the, the 1970s. And, and, and there's a question here um, about uh, a time lag of lapsation. So if you're being interviewed in your early 20s, you might still tick the box. Now, obviously, if you were brought up in your 1940s, then you were, you'd have had time to have left by the time uh, the survey happens. But certainly, for this period, um, the retention rate of Catholicism just kept going down and down and down, and, and never reached the heights again that it had in the immediate, well, wartime or pre-war years. Um, uh, we'll come to that in a second. Now, in general, large-scale religious change, and it can always be affected by either immigration effects. So you get some wave of immigrants, and obviously, you know, you get a jump um, or a decline if they move out. Um, but barring mass conversions, which tend not to happen very often, um, in general, large-scale religious change happens slowly. Generation by generation. Children being, on average, slightly more or less religious than their parents, and then their children being, on average, also slightly more or less religious than their parents, and so on. Um, and, and obviously, birth rate has an effect here, but retention rate has an effect here, and all sorts of stuff. Um, now, a major part of my overall argument is that because of a combination of the wider social and cultural changes afoot when the boomers were born and raised, and on top of that, and, and in many ways reacting to and trying to counter that, the Catholic-specific changes occurring at a critical moment uh, for that generation set the overall trajectory of Catholic religious transmission and retention on a new, and so far, downward trajectory. We're beginning to see, beginning to see a point where actually we're likely to see this bottoming out because there comes a point when fewer and fewer people are being brought up Catholic in the first place because the only people bringing their children up Catholic are the more committed ones anyway. Um, so, I mean, you know, these, you know, always get like if present trends continue, and present trends almost never continue, so, you know, they're not going to go down forever. Um, we're not going to get that to 0% in like 2020. Hopefully. Um, after all, when they started to, when the baby boomers started to settle down in the 1970s and 1980s, their children were once again significantly more likely than their parents to be brought up by religiously mixed and indeed non-practicing parents. Even if they retained a Catholic identity, they'd be far less likely to practice as regularly as their parents had. Further away from extended family, and even further removed from the rich Catholic subcultures that their grandparents had almost certainly been raised in, and their parents might have been, but even if so, not to the same intensity. The boomers' children, therefore, um, were brought up in a Catholic church that was much less weird, actually, and colourful to that of previous generations, and what the American bishop Robert Barron has fittingly described as beige Catholicism. Um, you know, a tendency to downplay the sort of the... Well, no, I, do, I mean weird in the sense of kind of scandal to the Gentiles, God's foolishness, sort of, you know, supernatural um, uh, oddness of, 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 of the Catholic package. Um, and, and also the, the um, 
you know, the, the, so the set-apartness of, 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 you know, nuns and priests and Catholic churches and, and that whole um, aesthetic style and, and, and Latin and, and the sort of a, a whole different language that, you know, Catholic children was raised to, to know, the kind of shibboleths, like, you know, occasions for sin and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, moreover, they were raised and socialized by the prevailing society into a surrounding culture in which the prevailing social and moral norms, not least around divorce, contraception, sex before marriage, homosexuality, abortion, were shifting ever further and faster away from traditional Christian and still official Catholic position. The impact of the sexual abuse crisis, which could easily be the subject of a, a lecture or book in its own right, not just as a phenomenon, but as its effect on um, identity and, and, and masculine and, and giving um, can hardly be ignored here. Whereas in the past, even for the non-believing and non-practicing, claiming a Catholic identity, perhaps because of family or culture or national ties, think of St. Patrick's Day um, you know, celebrations in Boston or London or New York, that kind of um, proud to be Catholic, however distant one might be from norms of practice and belief. Um, rather than something of which one could be overwhelmingly proud and, and as a source of nostalgia and sort of family um, positive feelings, in the wake of several decades of horrifying revelations of abuse and cover-up, the Catholic brand has been undoubtedly and understandably tainted, poisoned. And of course, all this is, again, even more the case, on average, for the baby boomers' children's children, more or less, born in the 1990s and early 2000s, a generation for whom not having any religious identity, let alone actually being a believing, practicing Christian, and this isn't just a Catholic phenomenon, um, is very much the norm. Um, so according to the British Social Attitude Survey, um, around three quarters of uh, British 16 to 24-year-olds um, say they have no religion. Um, only 3% say that they're Anglican, and given Anglican Church of England being the state church, and, and, and in the past was the de facto, the kind of, you know, you Church of England by default, unless you've got a particular reason not to be. Um, now, um, and for, for a good while, no religion is the default, unless you have a particular reason not to be. Um, now, I'm very conscious of having skirted over a great deal of detail and of having made a number of argumentative leaps that I haven't been able to spell out or justify as fully as I would ideally like. There's certainly um, uh, whole comparative things to be said, because it's not just a Catholic case, of course. And, and in many ways, the Catholic um, numbers look more robust than, say, the Church of England. Um, that's partly because the Catholic numbers had much further to fall, and this is sometimes missed. So prior in the 1950s and early 60s, Catholic mass going was vastly higher than, than the Protestant churches, for example. But also, the Catholic church has been constantly topped up by um, immigrants um, in a way that the Church of England had a wave from the former colonies, places like the Caribbean or parts of Africa, but haven't had this constant topping up of Poles and Filipinos and Ukrainians and, 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 and all the nationalities I meet at my daughter's Catholic primary school. Um, and, and they're the ones who you then meet at Mass. 
you know, so there's that whole. So the Catholic numbers look um, uh, better than than some of the other denominations, but there's there's other things at play. Um, certainly, I've not been able to relate the whole story this evening, um, and but I have, I hope, uh, given a, a decent uh, account of what I think is the the biggest. Uh, dominant plot within a much bigger and richer and more complicated story and, and there are of course a great many subplots. That is the importance of the baby boomers as a watershed generation both due to the different world in which they were raised um, and more specifically to the sweeping and chaotic changes that occurred to them at a very critical point in their life course. Um, even had there been no council, no deep and rapid liturgical reforms, no raise to then dash hopes surrounding the pill, no official end to fish on Fridays, the strong likelihood is that British Catholicism would have had a fairly torrid time of the past half century. I mean, nothing in my paper or book should be uh, taken as reading, well, if there hadn't been uh, a council, if there hadn't been this, then, you know, there's Catholic figures would be up where they always had been and would have kept growing and growing. It, it just wouldn't have happened. Um, as we've already seen, lapsation was already a worried about significant phenomenon before. Um, and, and in many ways, the, the radicality of the, the changes were, were an attempt to address those cracks that were already showing. Um, and, and as I've mentioned before, the traditional urban neighbourhoods um, were already passing away um, by the 1960s and, and, and long before. Um, but these considerations um, are not sufficient for explaining the scale and nature of Catholic lapsation and disaffiliation over the past five decades alone. There aren't significant non-Catholic specific factors that have had a very uh, important effect and would have done anyway. Um, but that doesn't imply that there, there isn't a specifically Catholic story to tell. Uh, in fact, it's difficult to imagine a scenario in which the depth and rapidity and, and breadth of the, the changes that happened within Catholicism in the 60s and, and 70s couldn't have had an effect um, on the pastoral life of the church. I mean, it, it, it seems you, you can't just kind of, you know, change everything around and, and things carry on. I mean, if it had gone up or gone down, it, to, to imagine that it had a null effect seems to me um, absurd, frankly. Um, the beginning of the decline in terms of absolute numbers um, coincided more or less exactly with the beginning of a sustained point of period of far-reaching changes. Um, and this awkward fact is most easily and obviously explained by the hypothesis that the reforms, as they were actually enacted and experienced, did not achieve what the council hoped that they would, in Britain at least. Um, Vatican II was specifically intended to equip the church to meet the challenges of the present and the future. Um, and the council's own justifications for the reforms um, was precisely to meet the needs of the modern age and, and the new architectural norms, the new aesthetic norms, the new theological styles, the new ecumenical openness were all specifically hoped to turn around the, the, the decline we're already seeing. I mean, remember in that um, uh, film clip, um, you know, that this, this 
was a, a cathedral to meet the needs of the modern age that would stand here for 500 years. And, and, and the very last thing um, um, is, is, is precisely to return full circle. Um, and, and like a great many less famous Catholic churches built in the 60s, uh, the radical design of Liverpool Metropolitan Cathedral was understood to be a bold statement that religion accepts the challenges of the 20th century. Even before the next 10 years were out, the roof of this confidently future-facing icon was leaking badly. In 1981, the Archdiocese issued a writ claiming millions in damages from its architect, engineers and builders for negligence and breach of contract. Um, it eventually received 1.3 million in an out-of-court settlement. Um, and since then, millions more pounds from various charitable foundations have been used for upkeep and repairs. Thank you.